Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for all the women that are here, um, the ones that took the time out of their busy schedules to be here, the ones that have driven a long way in order to be here, God. And uh, I just pray that this whole weekend is beneficial and that as leaders in campus ministry, that they're taking the lessons that they're hearing seriously and that they're able to go back to their ministries, each individual ministry, and to be able to change some things and be able to work on themselves and to work on their character and to be able, because of that, to reach out to other women as they look at them and see something different in them. God, I pray especially that you be with me today. Be with me, be with my words, be with uh, my thoughts. Uh, help them to be clear. Help me to, to speak clearly. Um, God, that it's going to be beneficial for the women that are here. Uh, God, just thanks for loving us, and thanks for giving me all these sisters from all over the place, God. Uh, it's just so cool to know that I can go to Florida, I can go to Alabama, I can go to Oklahoma, and I have a lot of sisters all over these places that if I ever needed anything, that I could go to them and they would be there for me. And I hope they know that, too, from us. God, just thanks for love and all you give to us. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Okay. Carrie, get out of here. Oh my goodness, he's just like his father. Um, okay, this is a class on reviving our character. And so to start with, I think it's important that in order to revive your character, we have to know what character is. And I want to define character. What does it mean? What does character even mean? And I want to look at two different perspectives, and one of them is a biblical perspective on what character means, and the other one is a practical description of what character means. Now, from a big biblical perspective, it means moral excellence. When I say your character defined is moral excellence, how does that make you girls feel? What do you think? Moral excellence. What comes to mind? A lot of pressure. That's what I thought. Whenever I, I was reading this and as I was studying the biblical perspective of what it meant, and it was moral excellence, I, I automatically start feeling kind of, oh, I'm never going to be excellent. You know, I can't be this. I can't be excellent at anything. Or I can't do this for long term. It was scary to me to think of moral excellence. But that's what the Bible says. If you go to 2 Peter 1, verse 5, in the New Living Translation, it says this. In view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a gener generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge. What is he saying? Not only is, is he saying you need to have moral excellence, but you need to have a generous what provision of it. And I'm like, wow, no pressure, right? No pressure here. In the, in the ISV version of 2 Peter 1.5, it says this, For this very reason you must make every effort to supplement your faith with moral character, your moral character with knowledge. So that's what it means, moral excellence. I, you know, I can't take it and water it down for us because that's what it means. It's something that we have to strive to be better at. We have to strive to be excellent at. Uh, now from a practical perspective, this is what most of you have probably heard. If I ask you, what is character? From a practical standpoint, what comes to mind? What have you guys heard most of your life probably? Especially if you was raised in, a, in church or anywhere around a church. What comes to mind? 
when you talk about character? What? Do your best. Somebody else? That's exactly. The one I grew up hearing is, that's what the practical perspective was. Who you are when no one else is looking. And even better, I think, that you could change that a little bit, is who you are when no one can look on the inside of you. What's that saying? Our heart, right? It's our heart. Who you are when no one is looking. I always heard who you are, you know, when you're in the dark. Who you are when you're away from your family. Who you are when you're away from your parents. Who you are when you're away from the church leaders. You know, that, and that's a good description of character. It's who you are when no one else is looking. Now, the greatest struggle, though, is not how to define character, but it's going to be how to develop that character. That didn't take long, did it, to define what character was? How long did it take us to define what it was? Two to three minutes? It takes a lot longer to develop our character, doesn't it? Oh, if it was only that easy to stand up here and say, in two minutes, this is what it is, if it was only that easy to be able to, de to develop it like that, that would be great. Uh, a man by the name of Alan Redpath put it this way, and I love what he said. He said, the conversion of a soul is a miracle of a moment. The manufacturer of a saint is the task of a lifetime. The conversion of a soul is a miracle of a moment. The manufacturer of a saint is a task of a lifetime. You know, when we become Christians at our conversion, we are forgiven like that, aren't we? It's not a matter of hours or a matter of months or a matter of years. At your baptism, you're forgiven like that. If it was only that easy to change our character, that would be pretty easy, wouldn't it? But it's not. It's something that takes, and I hate to break it to you girls, but the manufacture of a saint, the manufacture of becoming a disciple is something that takes a task of a lifetime. I turned 59 this year, and I'm going to enjoy the 50s one more year, okay? And I'm going to be in my 60s. And I would like to say that, oh, yeah, I've arrived. My character's good. I'm excellent. My moral excellence is great. No, it's something that is an everyday challenge for me. And I would like to tell you girls that it gets easier the older you get, but it really doesn't. Yeah, am I wiser in some areas? Yeah but I still have my thorns in the flesh, I still have my struggles, and it's not something that comes easy every day. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. So in our quest, okay, to discover how we're going to revive our character, we want to look at one biblical character. And Robert and I, as we were talking and discussing this, we looked at two or three different people, like, okay, we want to stay with one person. Who do we want to look at? Well, of course, Christ comes to mind, right? No better character than Christ. No better moral excellence than Christ, you know? And so we thought about doing him, and then we started looking at somebody else. We started looking at Joseph. Now, how many of you know the story of Joseph pretty well? The coat of many colors, yeah, that story? Okay, good. So we won't have to go back through all of it. But... His name's Joseph, and we look, we're going to look, as we study this out, we're going to look at four major life events on every point that I have. We're going to look at four major life events over and over again 
to reveal the secrets of developing a Joseph-like character because Joseph had an unquestionable character. When you look at him and when you look back over his life, and we probably, when he comes on the scene where we really start knowing who he was, he was probably around the age of 16 years old. So younger than all of, almost all of us in here. Um, and as I studied it, I was like, wow, that's, he's just so neat. I really would love to have a character like Joseph. So number one, Joseph shows me that if I want my character revived, it, I must begin with an awareness and a trust in God. If I want to have a Joseph-like character, I must begin with an awareness and a trust in God. The foundation, ladies, of our character and of having great character is my faith. It's my personal relationship with God. That's the foundation. Uh, biblical faith is more than just believing in God. It's trusting in him. Which is harder, believing in God or trusting in God, ladies? Trust. Isn't there a scripture that says something about even the what believed? Even the demons believed, didn't they? You know, and so we can believe in God, but trusting him is a, just in another entire level, isn't it? I can say easily, yeah, I believe in God. Yes, I believe this. Are you willing to trust him with your life? Ooh, I don't know about that, you know. Are you willing to trust him in the little areas? Are you willing to trust him in the big areas of your life? That's when it becomes harder. So biblical faith is more than believing in God. It's trusting in him. It's fair to say, and it can be supported by the Bible, that Christ-like faith involves an awareness and a trust in God. If you turn to Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, And without faith... It is not possible to be well-pleasing to him, for it is necessary for anyone who comes to God to have the belief that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who make a serious search for him. So biblically, it's impossible to have a good character without having a trusting relationship in God. Now that's when it sounds a little scary, doesn't it? It's impossible to have good character without trust, having a trusting relationship with God. Um, the relationship with God is the cause. The character is the effect. Does that make sense? Our relationship with God is the cause, but our character is the effect. And a lot of times we get this back, backwards, girls. Often we shoot for good character. How many of us want to be known for having good character? Some of you don't care. Some of you, okay. Most of us want to be known for having good character. But the problem is we shoot for good character sometimes, but we miss having a good relationship with God. We're shooting for the good character, but we totally miss out on the good relationship with God. Not knowing that if we shoot for a good relationship with God, we're not going to be able to miss having a good character. Does that make sense? Aim at the cause and you're going to get the effect, right? If we aim at the cause, we're going to get the effect. Now, I told you as we're looking through this, we're going to look at four major life events on every point that I have, and I think there's three points, of Joseph. Because I want you to look at Joseph, a man of an impeccable character. Um, and if you look at Joseph, you're going to see that he, he consistently displays an awareness of and a trust in God. He does it in all situations. 
Good situations, bad situations, easy situations, hard situations, understandable situations, or unable to understand. He may not understand what's going on, but if you really study Joseph, you're, what you're going to see is he trusts God anyway. Even in the times that he didn't understand what was going on, he trusted God anyway. For me, that's the hardest. I don't know about you ladies. If I can understand something, a lot of times, okay, I'm going to trust you, God. I can understand this. But when it, times are hard and I don't understand why it's happening, that's when it's hard for me to trust in God. Whenever someone you love who is in their 20s dies, that's when it's hard for me to understand and trust in God and to understand, what, God, what are you doing here? That's when it becomes hard. That's when it becomes difficult. But the greatest thing about Joseph is we get to see that he did that anyway. If you look at Joseph's life, it wasn't an easy life, was it? If, anybody, if there's anybody you can look at and say, man, his life seems really unfair, who would it be? Joseph. It would be Joseph. So the first thing that we're going to look at, because I said we're going to look at four of them, in the revealing of his dream to his brothers and sisters. Now I want you to turn to Genesis 37, and we're going to read uh, verse 5 through verse 9. And this is kind of at the beginning. Now a little background again on Joseph. Uh, Joseph was known to be the favorite child, right? How many of you have siblings? How many of you feel like one of the siblings is the favorite child? How many of you are the middle child? Sucks, doesn't it? That's me. <laughs> I'm the middle child, too. I love it when they have middle child days, you know, and I like to put my picture up and give my sister and brother a hard time. But anyway, back to this. Um, so Joseph was the favorite child, okay? His father made him a what? Coat of many colors. Isn't it nice that he made him a coat that made him warm and it was beautiful and pretty? You know? But it meant more than that. Did you realize that by his father giving him that coat, that coat signified more than him just being a favorite child. It signified that he was going to be the ruler over the family. Was he the oldest? No, he wasn't the oldest. So, what did that do to the other brothers? Made him jealous. Did you realize that, who was Joseph's mother? Rachel. You remember the story? What happened with his dad and Rachel? Remember? He worked how many years? 14 years to get Rachel. But the first seven years he worked, who did he get? Who? Leah. Leah. Guess who the other brother's mother was? He's the firstborn of Rachel. Wow. He has a younger brother named Benjamin, and he's the youngest son of her. So here he is, you know, the favorite child. He's going to get all the good stuff, you know, and he's got all these brothers that are older than him who I'm sure feel entitled, right? especially the oldest brother, to be able to receive the stuff that's obviously going to be going to Joseph. So in the revealing of his dream, it starts in verse, we're going to start in verse 5. It said, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So it wasn't, they didn't just hate him because of the dream, right? This says they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to, listen to this dream I had. 
We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. Okay, one dream wasn't enough, right? He had to have two. And guess what he did? Told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And they're all going, yay, let's hear it. No, that's not what they did. And this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So here you have Joseph, but even though he knew, especially after the first dream, don't you guys think he knew his brothers were going to be upset with him and hate him even more? But because Joseph trusted in God, and he had a personal relationship with God. That's why I believe he told them about the second dream. If it would have been you and I, what would we have done? The first one didn't go over so well, so I don't think I'm going to tell him the second dream. I mean, I think that's what I would have said. You know, I'm not going to go there because they're already pretty ticked off at me and they're already pretty jealous. I'm not going to tell them. But he didn't do that, did he? Joseph did not do that because He trusted in God more than I would have. That's a lesson in and of itself, isn't it? On trusting God. Second thing that he did was in his rejection of Potiphar's wife. Now, how many of you remember the story of Potiphar's wife? In Genesis 39, 9, okay, Potiphar was his what? His master. His wife had the hots for Joseph because apparently he was a good-looking dude, okay? And she wanted to sleep with him. She wanted to have sex with him. And so she does not give up easily. She's Potiphar's wife, and she probably normally what? Gets what she wants, right? And so in Genesis 39, verse 9, it says, this is him talking, This is Joseph talking. He says, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master, which is Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you. He's talking to Potiphar's wife. Because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing against God? So here you have Joseph. And he's in the middle of Egypt. And when I talked earlier about he was probably around 16 years old when his brothers took him and did what to him? Threw him in a well and then what? Sold him into slavery. So here you have a young boy that his brothers initially thought about killing, but they ended up throwing him in a well and making his parents think that he was what? He was dead. But they didn't leave him in that well. Here comes a band of uh, men along, and so they take him out of the well and say, hey, we might, we might as well make some money off of him. So what they do? They sold him. And as I was studying it out, I can't remember. I don't know if anybody's got the Bible, in their Bible. They can see real quickly how much they sold him for. But the amount that they sold him for, as I studied this out, was cheaper than the, what they would have bought a crippled slave for. 
They sold their brother cheaper than what they would have sold a crippled slave for. It says a little bit about how they felt about their brother, doesn't it? So they sell him into slavery. And then here's this country boy, okay, been sold into slavery, and they take him to Egypt. Now, Egypt at that time was, was a pretty big city, okay? And at that time, the pyramids were already built. Can you imagine being a 16-year-old boy, and you have been sold by your family, taken to a totally different country, and you come into this country, and it's not the country you grew up in, right? Totally different country, different religions, different people. Everything's different. Can you imagine how scary that had to be? And as I thought about that, I thought, you know what? Joseph left his family. Joseph left his people. Joseph left his country. But guess what Joseph did not believe behind? His God. He had his God by his side all the time because he trusted in him. Because he trusted in him, even though he's sitting in the lap of luxury inside this house in a very intense situation with his boss's wife coming on to him, he was still aware of his God. Now, he could be like us. You know, sometimes when you're, you go away for, let's say, spring break or family, you know, Christmas vacation, and wouldn't it be easy once you've left the people in your church that know you or you've left your family, went to a different country, how easy would it be for you to go to this other country and go, oh, nobody knows me here. I can do what I want. What's it going to hurt if I go, you know, get a little plastered? What's it going to hurt if I smoke a little weed? What's it going to, nobody knows. Nobody knows me here. I'm good. Could he have thought something like that? Minus the weed. Could he have thought something like that? Sure. Who's going to know that I slept with uh, his beautiful wife? My family's not going to know. But guess who he knew? Knew. God. God knew. And his trust in God is what got him through those difficult times. Um, so that's one thing in the rejection of Potiphar's wife. In his interpretation of dreams, in Genesis 40, verse 8, it says, We both had dreams. And they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. So guess who they went to? Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So his character doesn't allow him to even take credit for being able to interpret dreams. That says something again about his relationship with God, his trust in God. And in Genesis 41, verse 15, it says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So whether in prison or whether in a palace, the first one was in prison, the next one's in a palace, Joseph is aware of trusting in God, that that's who he needs to trust in, is God. In his forgiveness of his brothers, in Genesis 45, verse 4, and also Genesis, you can write down Genesis 50, 19, and 20. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Now, he's been away for years. There's a famine, right? And his brothers come to him, but they don't know it's him. 
So they come to him to get what? To get food. When they realize who it is, how scary do you think that would be? You've sold him into slavery, left him for dead, right? Sold him to, as a slave. So here he comes, and it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. <laughs> I wonder who they pushed up front, the brother they didn't like. You go first, you go first, you know. But come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, what would you be doing at this point? I would be terrified what's going to come next, right? Because he could have done anything to them. And then he says, And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Why didn't he get angry? Why didn't he get angry? How many of us would have been angry? I would have been angry. But look at what he says. He says, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. What's he doing here? He's trusting in God. He knew that God was working. He's not even angry with them. He's not blaming them. Because he says, I trust in God, and I know God well enough to know that he sent me here for a reason. He sent me here. I had a purpose. In every situation that you look at Joseph in, the point of reference is not his feelings, but it's his faith. How many of us would have allowed our feelings to take over at that point? I, I think I would have. And my faith would have been out the door. But Joseph did not allow that. He, he's acutely aware of God's presence, and he's acutely aware that God permeates every part of his life. Every part of his life. So, first off, when we're looking at our character, we have to understand if I'm going to revive it is, I must begin with an awareness and trust in God. Secondly, I must continue the transformation by discovering God's will. Inner transformation, the transformation of my character involves me embracing God's way of thinking. Not my way of thinking, but God's way of thinking. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. You know, we define character as moral excellence, but how does one know what is moral and what is excellent? How do we know? How do we know what is moral and what is excellent? By our world? Is that how we know what's moral? Heavens, no. <laughs> it's not by our world. How about by our traditions? Nope, nope. How do we know what's moral, ladies? How do we know what's excellent? By knowing God, right? By going to his word and knowing him. Having moral excellent requires knowing what is excellent morally, and knowing requires knowing the word of God. If we want to be morally excellent, ladies, we have to know the word of God. It has to be in us. In Romans 7, 7, it says, Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was 
If the law had not said, you shall not covet. So how do we know? From God's word, from the law. That's how we know what our character should be, how we should be living our lives. Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So what is it again? God's word, by what use? Every occasionally, once a month, once a week. What does it say? Constant use. Have what? Train themselves to distinguish good from evil. Romans 7, 7, I love it. I, okay, I, I don't say study out of the message paraphrase, okay, because it is a paraphrase, so you have to be careful when you're reading it, okay? But I love this verse, how it explains it, in Romans 7, 7. It says, without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would, mostly, would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct surgical command, you shall not covet, I, I could have dressed covetousness up like virtue and ruined my life with it. What is that saying? What is that saying, ladies? We can make it mean what we want sometimes, right? If we don't know what God's word really says. My character, guys, is like my conscience. Sometimes it may be the voice of my, my character. It has to be educated in order to be excellent. There are people who can do horrible things and have a good conscience doing them. Now, I can think of somebody in the Bible like that. Who comes to mind when I say that? There are people who can do horrible things but still have a good conscience doing them. Who comes to mind? Paul. Exactly. Acts 23.1. Saul of Tarsus, he says, gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, brothers, I have always lived before God with a what? Clear conscience. And we ask, what? How can he say this? You know, when you consider what he was doing at the time, what he was involved in at the time, how could he say this? He could say it because it was true to him, wasn't it? Because his conscience was educated by his culture, by his religious teachers. But it wasn't educated by what? The Word of God. That's how he could say it. 1 Timothy 1, 13 says he was ignorant. It says, I acted in ignorance and unbelief, is what it says. So sometimes when we think, we're, you know, we can be like him and say, well, I did this and it was in all good conscience. But it's not what God says. It's out of ignorance that we say that. If you really want to know, where do you go? Go to God's word. Romans 9.1 says, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. What's the difference here? The conscience and the what confirm it? The Holy Spirit confirms it. One of the Holy Spirit's primary functions, okay, is to reveal and lead us to truth. Without being educated, though, by God's word, it's impossible for me to know what is moral and what is excellent. I cannot know what is good or what good character is if I'm not in his word. And we definitely know we can't depend on the world, don't we, to guide us in moral character. 
And sometimes we can't even depend on our tradition or things that we have been taught in our past to know what is good morally. Um, Ephesians 6, 17 says, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. And Ephesians 6, 17 says, Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So through the sword of the spirit and the word of God, I can know what God considers morally excellent, what it means to have a good character. The truth may be the reason after, that after adding faith and moral character to one's life, Peter challenges the hearer to then add knowledge. If you look at 2 Peter 1.5, it says, For this very reason you must take every effort to supplement your faith with your moral character and your moral character with knowledge. Ladies, we have got to be in God's word. If we want to have good moral character, moral excellence, we have to be in his word. I can't stress that enough. We have to be in his word. We can't depend on our campus minister. We can't depend on our uh, sister in Christ totally. Okay, you do depend on them. You get what I'm saying here. But it's up to you to be in God's word to understand what moral excellence really means. Um, so along with this, Joseph's awareness of God included an awareness of God's will. Joseph's knowledge of what God wanted is evident, again, in the major areas that we talked about on the first point in the life events he faced. First, in the revealing of his dream to his brother and father in Genesis 37, 5 and 9. I believe that Joseph believed that God was the source of his dream. Do you think they believed that, his brothers, even his dad? No, but I really believe that he believed it. His family's response to suggest that Joseph did not see the dream as just an off-the-wall dream. If he would have just thought, well, this is just an off-the-wall dream, I'm not going to say anything, he wouldn't have said anything, would he? Why put yourself through what the brothers put him through? In the rejection of Potiphar's wife, when he said, no one is greater in this house than I am, my master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He didn't say sin against Potiphar there, did he? He understood the laws. He understood because he studied him. He knew what God's law was. Joseph was not aware of God's presence. He was aware of God's standards. He was aware of his presence, but not only that. He was aware of God's standards. He knew that adultery was wrong. How did he know that? Because he knew God's word. He had studied it. He knew it. In his interpretation of dreams, again in Genesis 40, verse 8, it says, We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Again, Genesis 41, 15, and 16, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answers he desires. So once again, Joseph was aware that God could interpret those dreams, wasn't he? He was aware of that but also that it was God's will that God received the glory for those dreams being interpreted, not him, not Joseph. Because of this, Joseph humbled himself and he exalts God just as he has been commanded. He understood, how does God look at pride, ladies? 
Does he like it? What does the Bible say? He hates it. He hates pride. Joseph knew that. That's why he was willing and able to be able to say, it's not me that's going to interpret these dreams. He knew he was a vessel, but who did he give the glory to? He gave it to God, not himself. Um, how about in, the in his forgiveness of his brother's sin? Once again, Genesis 45, 4 and 5, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Genesis 50, 19, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph was aware and trusting of God and aware that it was his will that he carried it out. He's also aware that vengeance was not God's will. Once again, we see that Joseph knows God and values humility. Most of us, and, and I don't know if I'm the only one, if I'm just a vindictive person, but what I would have wanted to do, vengeance would have been mine, saith the Lord. You know, but it would have been, saith Rita, the vengeance is mine. I'm going to get you guys, you know. Brothers or not, I'm going to get you. You know, I've lived, I've been away from my family. I've been away from my country. I've been away from people that worship like I do for all these years. You're going to pay. That's what I would have wanted to said. But because Joseph was such a man of character, he wouldn't do that. Because he knew God's word, and he knew what God's word said about vengeance. He knew what God's word said about being prideful. And he didn't want to be that. He was a man of character. I love that about him. The third point is, Joseph shows me that if I want my character revived, I must complete the transformation by obeying God's will. The ultimate revealer of character, ladies, the ultimate revealer of our character is our behavior. It's my behavior. Mark 7, 22 and 23 says... For from inside from your heart come the evil ideas which lead you to do immoral things. To rob, kill, commit adultery, be greedy, and do all sorts of evil things. Deceit, indecency, jealousy, slander, pride, and folly. All these evil things come from inside you and make you unclean. It comes out in our what? In our behavior. Matthew 12, 35 Good people do the good things that are in them, but evil, poop, people, <laughs> but evil people do the evil things that are in them. So the obedience test is especially telling when godly actions are in response to ungodliness. And as I look at Joseph, I see that over and over and over again. He had godly actions in response to so much ungodliness. And, a lot, and if you just even look at his life, it, was it fair that his brothers sold him into slavery? Was that fair? Was it fair that he went to another country where he knew nobody or he didn't know the culture, he knew nothing about him? Was that fair? Was it fair that Potiphar's wife had the hots for him and he wouldn't have sex with her, but he ends up going to prison? Was that fair? Was that fair? How would you guys handle that? All of that. I know my, me, my natural response would be, God, why are you doing this? I would be angry with God, and that's scary, right? 
My character's not as good as his. I want to become like Joseph in his character. I want people to be able to look at me and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, these people are, they're, they're lying about her or they're treating her really bad or they don't have any respect for her, but why is she still godly? Because she has moral excellence and good character. That's how I want to be. I want to become like Joseph in those areas. I don't want to be who I am because that's not pretty. I want to become like him. And I want to have that kind of character that he has, even in the hard times. Joseph's awareness of God and his understanding of God's will is confirmed by his submissive obedience in each of his significant life areas. Once again, in the revealing of his dream to his brothers and fathers, I believe that Joseph believed that God was the source of the two dreams that he had. But I also believe that he revealed it not to show off, but because he thought God wanted it revealed. And I never caught this before, but in Genesis 41, verse 32, it said the reasons the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms, not one, in two forms, is that the matter had been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Never thought about that. Because I, growing up, I don't know about Kara, about you, but a lot of times when I would hear sermons and stuff about Joseph... It was, well, he was kind of a show-off. Have you heard that? How many of you have heard that have been around? I've heard that over, well, you know, it's kind of his fault. He got treated that way because he was being a show-off. You know, they already knew he was the favorite child, but he couldn't stop with one dream. He had to go tell two dreams. But reading this, I'm like, maybe it wasn't because he was a show-off. Maybe it's because he understood that this had firmly been decided by God. And he was being told to do it. Wow, that's a big difference, isn't it? Huge difference. How about in the rejection of Potiphar's wife? Once again, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph was not only aware of God's presence and aware of God's standards, he was obedient to them. He obeyed the command to flee the evil desires of your youth before it was even revealed in the New Testament. He was gone. He was out of there. Remember? And didn't she grab something from him as he was running away? And what did she yell? Rape. Rape. And that's why he went to prison. Because he wouldn't compromise. His obedience to God. He knew it was wrong. He knew it was sinful. Do you think he would have enjoyed it? I'm sure he would have. Because usually the rich people had the pretty women, right? Back in the day. But he didn't because he was willing to obey God rather than his desires, his fleshly desires. In his interpretation of the dreams, once again, while Joseph was aware that God gave the dream and wanted the glory, he allowed himself to be used for God. It wasn't about him. And once again, in his forgiveness of his brother's sin... Because Joseph was aware and trusting that it was God's plan for him to be in Egypt, he responded obediently to God by forgiving, reassuring, and supplying the, the brothers who had betrayed him. How hard would that be for us? How hard would that be for us? That's the areas that it's hardest for me 
to obey God and to trust him is when I feel like I've been betrayed. Probably more than anything, that's the hardest for me. To still be godly when I've been betrayed. But because he had moral character, he did it anyway. Do you think it was just because it was easy for him? I don't think so. Don't you think a little part of him wanted to pinch one of their big toes or wrestle with them or something with his brothers? Or scare them just a little bit more? Yeah, that would have been me. He didn't do that. He reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Because he chose to obey God other than what he wanted, other than his will. I want to be a person of character like Joseph, a person who trusts in God, a person who knows God want, what God wants and then does what God wants, even in the most difficult circumstances. My prayer is that you ladies will go and study out Joseph and look at it, study it out just from who he was, what his character was, what his moral excellence was. And then take that and look at your life and say, how do, I, how, do, how do I do this? And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we're going to go, oh, I need to work a little bit on this. I know I do. That's all I have. Uh, love you, ladies. And I think you have, is it free time? Does anybody know? Carol's the schedule lady. Huh? Free time. All righty. Love you, ladies. Thank you.